Welcome to the HIF Player, bringing Harrogate International Festivals into your home. This event was recorded live at the Feakston Old Peculiar Crime Writing Festival. Enjoy. <laughs> All right, so we're with Kathy Rikes. What about this, ladies and gentlemen? Is this exciting? All right. One of the greatest crime writers, and as you see here, this is, this is uh, two nights which I've got and read and loved. 30 million books sold worldwide. And uh, in fact, I'm just going uh, to, I don't know if reading your book to you is a good idea, but the very first paragraph, almost before the book starts, uh, says, Dear reader, and this is from Kathy, the old adage to write what you know is often good advice. But as P.I. Sunny Knight says, life is a rat's nest of noise and chaos and chance. Sometimes you need to throw caution to the wind and and strike out on a new path. So that is exactly what I've done, says Kathy. It's been some time since I've introduced a new protagonist, and I'm excited for you all to meet Sunday night. So we have to start with Sunday, don't we, this Friday? And you can, <laughs> you can tell us about her. You could tell me what day of the week it is, I'd believe, any day, because I've been on book tour since, uh, I don't know, 2001, I think. <laughs> yeah. So... So, okay, well, it's Friday. And uh, this is a, it's a brilliant Harrogate audience now, which is huge. And I'm hoping everyone can see, but I think at the back they're probably... I can't see a thing. I, I don't know. have this fear that when the house lights go up, everybody will be gone, except the, yeah. except the first row, because we can see them, and you guys can't sneak yeah, out. Yeah, we see so. the first row. Mm -hmm, yeah. Now, these are the, this light system was used by U2 last, I think. But anyway, <laughs> Sunday night. Yes. Go on, tell us about her, because she's a rather unusual character. She is an unusual character. Um, she actually stems from my second Temperance Brennan book, Death Du Jour. And that book, how far back do you want me to go? That book originated because of the Order of the Solar Temple, which was a suicide murder situation, a cult. Back in, back in the mid-90s, and the first victims of that came to our lab in Montreal, and we did the autopsies, and then some 75 people killed themselves and each other in France and Switzerland. So I really got interested in cults, and I did a lot of research on cults for uh, death du jour. How do cults recruit people? Who's vulnerable to being recruited into a cult? How do cults control the behavior of their members, even to get them killing themselves or others? So that's kind of a theme in, um, in Death Du Jour. So fast forward to a year and a half ago when I decided to create a brand new character, and I thought back to that, and I thought, well, what would be the impact on a child of growing up? in one of these apocalyptic cults, a child who perhaps lost everyone she ever knew or loved. And that's what's happened to Sunday night. She um, is raised in a cult. They don't believe in names. Like the cult in Death Du Jour, the cult has no name. People laugh, they wanna have one, fine, if not fine. She's born on a Sunday, so they call her Sunday. She gets wind of something very bad about to happen when she's about 15 years old decides she has to escape from this cult and save them from themselves. But she's been tricked about when the event is going to take place, so she fails to save them. And as soon as she leaves, she's 15. She doesn't know how to use a phone. She doesn't know how to drive a car. She gets arrested. And the cop says to her, what's your name, kid? Sunday. Sunday what? Sunday. What's your name, kid? We can do it here, or we can do it down at headquarters. So she hears a 
uh, song playing in the background, Neil Diamond, I think, hot August night and the leaves hanging down. So she hears that. She says, night. My name is Sunday night. So that's where her name came from. <laughs> so she's, uh, she's an interesting character. Because of her background, she's got a lot of baggage. Um, she's a bit paranoid. She um, doesn't deal well with authority. She doesn't follow rules. Yeah, that's the understatement of the evening yes. so far. Yeah. <laughs> so she actually ends up her, uh, the cop, the Charleston Police Department cop that arrested her, Perry Beaumont, but he's, bless you. He's, he's called, in the audience. He's called Bo, because that's what we do in the South. We, we call people Bo. Anyway, Bo ends up being her foster father. She drops out of high school. She later gets her GED. She gets arrested again. And Perry says to her, Bo says to her, you're either, you're putting on a uniform, you're either going to jail, putting on an orange jumpsuit, or you're going in the military. So she joins the Marine Corps, does two hitches. Sunday never does anything halfway. She gets an administrative discharge. It's not honorable, but it's not dishonorable. We don't know quite what went wrong, but probably it had to do with an inability to deal with authority. Bo manages to get her a job as a cop in Charleston. She serves a short time as a Charleston police officer, but she gets injured in a drug deal bust, and she loses the vision in one eye and gets a pretty bad scar on that side of her face. They say to her, you can stay on the force, but you'll have to ride a desk. That's not going to work out for Sunday. So she retires. When we meet her, she has been living for six years pretty much in seclusion. I have a beach house on a barrier island outside of Charleston, South Carolina. Sunny is living on an island off of that barrier island. It's called Goat Island. There's no ferry. There's no bridge, no way to get out there. It's very, very basic. So when we meet her, she's been living that way for almost six years. I wondered when I, when I said so that the book opens with, with her in this peculiar situation, and I was, it was, I was thinking, is this a real place? So mm -hmm. you've just answered my question. It's real. It's a real place. You can go on Google Earth and look up Goat Island, South Carolina. And, and the isolation of the island is her isolation, and she's pr a pretty cut-off person, as you rightly say. In many ways, yes. In many ways. Mm -hmm. And I, um, I, the interesting thing, particularly about this book, is that you're starting with a new protagonist, as you said, we said at the start. Now, how do you create that person? Because I see in her echoes a little bit of the girl with the dragon tattoo and the heroine of the killing and these fascinating new breed of female protagonists that we're now seeing that are, who are actually very exciting to read about. Yeah, and I wanted something quite different from Temperance Brennan. And she, in some ways, she's similar to Tempe, but on many levels, she's very different. She's distrust book Tempe. We can talk about TV Tempe if you want to get into that. They are different. But she's, as I said, she's a bit paranoid. She doesn't have a phone. She will, if she needs a phone, she buys a burner phone and then she throws it away. She doesn't keep permanent internet. She keeps generating new uh, Gmail accounts, uses them briefly, and then terminates them. So she's very distrustful of the world. But she has a skill set that is very different from Temperance Brennan. Tempe is all about logic, and she's very cerebral. She's a scientist. Sunday's skills come from her experience 
in the Marine Corps in tracking and surveillance and interrogation, espionage, that sort of thing, and also her experience on the police department. She's very, unlike Tempe, she's very good with guns, and she has quite a few guns. You mentioned cults and your fascination with them, and there is a reference in this book I won't go into about Jonestown, which is another the famous Kool-Aid cult, wasn't it? Yes. So what... Because that was almost the classic cult disaster, wasn't it? There were quite a few in the 90s. There were the uh, Branch Davidians. Yep, which is referred to as well. Yeah. yeah, there were the Solar Temple people. There were the Heaven's Gate people in San Diego. Yeah, so there was just a spate of that. Have you, in, and in your work looking at them and what causes... Because I remember Waco, we had it live on TV here in the UK when they tried to raid it and all got shot. What causes people to hang together in a disastrous way like that. That is, what, that is what fascinated me, and I don't know that there's any one simple question. It's usually people who are on the fringe, who are on the edge, who are the most vulnerable, who are looking for some, a network, and they are sucked in at first unwittingly until eventually they've given over their earthly belongings, control over their daily activities, etc. Mm. And you've been involved in investigating the the, the remains of cults or what's happened to them in well, real life? The Solar Temple group, I don't know if you remember them, um, that cult was run by a man named Joe DiMambro and he regulated all reproduction in the group. And a couple had a baby without his per permission and he considered that baby the Antichrist. So before they made their crossing to the planet Sirius, which is a bad choice because it's not a planet, it's a star. But anyway, before they did the mass suicide uh, murder event to make the crossing, the Antichrist had to be killed. So Joe DiMambro sent two assassins from France to Quebec. They killed the baby, killed the parents, set the house on fire and killed themselves. So we did those autopsies at our lab in Montreal. So that's what really got me thinking about these extraordinary cults and how deadly damaging they can be. There's so much to talk to you about, but I do want to switch into your real-life work so we just get a sense of the, the, the real life alongside the writer's life. So just on a very factual basis, what sort of breakdown is your year? How much... Well, let's maybe go back five years when you were doing more of the, of the anthropology, the forensic anthropology. Was it a 50-50 split or...? That's the nature of um, violent death, is you can't predict it. Right, you can't um, schedule it. Yeah, yeah, yeah you so can't was quite say, a good look, I'm then. busy today. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so it, it was extremely variable. I would do, in a busy year, maybe 75 cases or so. In Montreal? Largely. Yeah. North Carolina also, and, and here and there um, around, the, around the country, but largely in Montreal. And... and your, for those who, who don't know you and your background, forensic anthropology is your skill set before writing. Um, I know the writing came later. Just tell us what that is and, and what, what you do with it. Bones. <laughs> if anyone has seen an episode of Bones, and it's really hard to avoid us, we're everywhere. Um, we specialize in the human skeleton. And we work for medical examiners, for coroners, for um, law enforcement, for the military. We work in human rights uh, domains. We work for uh, disaster recovery efforts in situations of mass fatalities. We address questions of identity. And we work on remains that are not... You can't do a regular autopsy. A pathologist would do a Y incision, take out the 
the liver and take out the brain and, and, and all of that. The bodies that come to the anthropologist are too compromised for a normal autopsy because they're burned, they're mutilated, they're mummified, they're decomposed, or maybe they're just bones. And sometimes the question is, well, who is it? And sometimes the question is, well, what was the, we may know who it is, in which case we can just get dental records or DNA, but you can't use those in a vacuum. If a completely unknown body is discovered, you don't know whose dentist to go to. So the anthropologist will give the investigating officer the age, the sex, the race, the height, anything, any peculiarities we can tease out of the skeleton. They can then take that profile, match it against missing persons lists, and if you get a possible match, then we have a name. Okay, it's, it's John Doe, and then you can go get dental records. So we do that. And among the things that you've done in, in real life have been identifying war dead from World War II and Korea, and you went to Rwanda as well. Yeah, um, that's correct. I, I worked at, we have a central identification laboratory in Hawaii. Uh, it's at Hickam Air Force Base. We have a commitment in the US that if we send any of our troops overseas anywhere, we will find them and we will bring them home. So the central ID lab, exists permanently. It's the largest employer of forensic anthropologists in the world. I think there are 40 full-time working there. There are teams on the ground in Southeast Asia from the conflict there in Vietnam and Cambodia. And there are also a lot of remains being turned over from Korea. We have something like 8,000 people still missing from Korea. And then occasionally, uh, a crash site, an airplane crash site will be found in New Guinea or Tibet or something from World War II. Anytime a positive ID is done, that has to be approved at multiple levels, one of which is an external civilian scientist reviewer. So that's what I did um, for the lab there. And do you remember the moment in your life when you decided forensic anthropology was what you wanted to do? I never really did because um, I wrote... There's a, there's a book out called The Bone Collection. And in The Bone Collection, that's four short stories, although I'm not very good at short. They're more like novellas. One of them is called First Bones, and that's an origin story for Tempe Brennan. But it's my origin story. She's in her lab at the university doing bioarchaeology, working on ancient skeletal remains, which is all she wants to do. When two cops show up, a very young, skinny Slidell and his partner, and because she's the bones lady at the university, they ask her to please come and look at some skeletal remains for them. And that's my history as well. I trained to do bioarchaeology and kind of got drawn into it. And so was, was there one particular skeletal remain that, that you had to start on? Oh, I remember the first case I worked on. It was a five-year-old child. I remember she went missing. There was a thunderstorm, and the news was covering her, her disappearance, and I remember thinking that night if she was out there, terrified, in this thunderstorm. And then some three months later, these little, little bones were found, and that was the first case I worked on. Do you, do you find yourself getting involved in the story of that child, or because it's bones, is it distant? You have to stay emotionally detached. You ha if you're going to be a scientist and be objective, you can't get emotionally involved with every victim or you're not going to be able to do them any good. So you do have to stay at somewhat of a distance and stay detached. You, some cases are harder than others. Obviously, children are harder for me. You actually called into a case recently in the USA, but tell us the details of that. It was to do with a... 
just, just, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to struggle for the details. What, tell us about the recent case you have been involved in that was huh. controversial. How, you know, the, the case, Casey Anthony? Yes, yes, exactly so. Exactly that one. Well done. <laughs> Thank you for saving your interview. Can you remind us why? Why? Because that was one where you didn't want to be involved, and then you decided you had to do it. Yeah, I just—it became a circus. Um, uh, her mother was accused of killing her. She was th th three, just short of three, I think. And um, the media just went crazy. And there were certain members of the media, certain journalists would be kind, uh, who just already had her convicted and, on air. And that's not the way our system is supposed to work. And I was very offended by that. So I was asked by the defense to look at the skeleton and also to visit the scene and see what I could see. Okay. And the, and the result was what? The result, um, the only report I could give was that um, the skeleton showed absolutely no evidence of trauma whatsoever. There was no cause of death uh, evident whatsoever. Um, and there were some minor mistakes made by the anthropologist on the other side, but right. nothing critical. When did you first decide that you wanted to write as well as practice? Well, as an academic, you have to write. I wrote a lot of, uh, you know, publish or perish. I wrote a lot of journal articles and books. Because um, I, I noticed quantified comparison of frontal sinus patterns by means of computed tomography. That, that wasn't a bestseller, that one, uh, was it? <laughs> <laughs> I have got the list here, actually. <laughs> My favorite title, I did a paper on sutures, are the squiggly lines on your skull where the bones meet. I did a paper, a pres oral presentation at a scientific meeting on variation in sutures, and I called it Suit Yourself. <laughs> <laughs> did they not approve of that? There you go. Um, so, so, because you started, uh, your first Deja Deb was 2000, it was 1997. Mm -hmm. So that's 20 years ago. So it was quite a way into your career that you, you started writing. I made full professor at the university. So I was free to try something new. Um, I had just worked on a serial murder case in Montreal, which involved some very interesting elements of dismemberment. And um, those things came together in the mid-90s. Mid um, also, I have three kids, and they were starting to talk about wanting to go to very pricey private universities. <laughs> so I thought maybe I could make a little money on the side. So all of those kind of came together, and I thought, well, I'll give... And, and I had a colleague who was writing straight to paperback. She was writing Western romances. And I read one, and I thought I could probably do um, th that. <laughs> <laughs> if you can't say something, no. yeah. Um, so I did. Yeah, yeah, so I did. I decided to to give it a try, and that resulted in uh, Deja Dead. And Deja Dead was the first with Temperance Brennan. Yes. In, and you've, we've mentioned Sunday Night, the character, the amazing character from from this book, and who's almost the opposite of, of temperance. In this, and, and I know people have said temperance is you, and you've often said it, it's, it's me without, uh, or temperance 
I, I am temperance without temperance's alcohol problem. I think that's the, the way yeah, of putting it. Yeah, she's, yeah. Non, she's a non-drinker, yeah. so don't confuse Oh, it's the other way around, is it? She's the non-drinker. Oh, okay, yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. I, was, I, yeah. Thought, <laughs> I thought I was about to make a terrible mistake. Yeah, no. Okay, I misread it in that case. Now okay. my publicist said, do you want a glass of wine while you're signing tonight? And I said, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I can't okay. have so, so you introduced temperance there, and I guess that the instinct of the writer first time in 97 is, Write, write yourself because you know who you are. Is that right? Do, and did you stay with that almost? Pretty much. Um, I, I actually tried, a, I wrote a partial manuscript, about 200 pages of it, and printed it out, or whatever you did back in the 90s, I guess, printed it out. And it was really dull and slow and boring. It was third person voice. So I decided to start over in first person voice. And that just worked for me. And it's, as you say, exactly. It was like I was telling my own story. And, and has it, did it ever become problematic that you're almost putting yourself into your own fiction? Not for me. <laughs> um, no, um, I just like, and I did the same thing with Sunday Night. It's for, there is a point of view shift in that book, so mm. it's not all from the same point of view, but Sunday is definitely first-person voice, so it's almost like I'm speaking through Sunday or for Sunday? When, when you finished Deja Dead and you, you, you rewrote it and it was definitely not dull, I mean, the success of that book is remarkable for a first novel. It was a New York Times bestseller. Won the 1997 Ellis Award for best first novel. And you must have, the, the thrill of that must have been amazing. That was pretty stunning, yeah. I, I, you know, when you write your first novel, you hope you can finish it. And then you hope someone will publish it. And then you hope someone will actually buy it and read it. So it goes through your head. You'll be at your keyboard every now and then. You'll think, oh, yeah, this is going to be a bestseller. Or, oh, yeah, this will be a TV show or a movie. And then you think, oh, get real. You know, just, just, <laughs> just try to finish the book. But we've, we've been then through since uh, then. Death du jour, Deadly Decisions, Fatal Voyage, Grave Secrets, Bare Bones, Monday Morning, Crossbones, Break No Bones. The list is, is remarkable. And... Um, you, you must, some, some people have every single one on their shelves and you think, wow. Yeah. The, right. se the sense of achievement of having created that. I've actually framed each of the book covers and I have them, there's a high shelf in my study and I have them leaning up there. My 13-year-old, you'd be pleased to know, has just recently read Virals. Yeah. And you've written that with your son, yes. Brendan. That's another series. Yes. So I don't know how many have read Virals here or maybe you've got... Yay! Right. So we know. Right. So so we've very much entangled with Temperance in the sense that it's her great niece, isn't it? Yeah. Virals, Tell us about Tori Brennan. Virals features Tori Brennan, who is Tempe's 14-year-old great niece, and she lives in uh, near Charleston. And she and her three best friends, who are boys, um, like science, and they like to solve. She's like a mini Tempe. They like to solve mysteries and and. Uh, resolve situations using science. So my son was a, is a lawyer, and he really didn't like practicing law. So he came to, and he was desperate to not practice law. I have, you know, $200,000 I spent to send two kids to law school. <laughs> oh, no. <laughs> Neither one of them practices law. They're both, they're both writers. Anyway, so we came up with this idea and uh, of, you know, of like forensic science, but for the middle school, well, 
high school level. And we pitched it to a publisher, and they said, that's great, we love it. Now throw in a zombie or throw in a vampire. <laughs> and we said, no, we're not going to do that. Yeah. But we did come up with this element of sort of super, not superpowers, but you know, do you want to talk about that? Well, ab about what, what the, the viral... The yeah. idea that the virus did something yeah, to them. It, yeah, it came from my dog. We had just uh, adopted a, a, a pot cake dog from the Turks and Caicos Islands. And as soon as we got this little puppy home, he was sick, and it turned out he had parvovirus, which is very deadly uh, for puppies. And it's only transmitted between dogs. But Brendan and I thought, huh, what if something happened that parvovirus could jump to humans? So at the opening, in the first book of the viral series, the kids liberate a dog, and it has parvovirus, and they get sick because the dog has been the subject of illegal experimentation on the par parvovirus to try to weaponize it. So the DNA has been altered. It jumps to humans. The kids get it. They get better, but they notice their DNA has been altered. They can see way beyond what the human eye can see. They can hear like a wolf. They can smell if people are lying or afraid. So the premise of the books, so they have these like canine, super perceptive abilities that only trigger in uh, under situations of stress. So the premise is that they use science at kind of a middle school, high school level, and these super sensory perception abilities to, to solve mysteries and and, and the adult, I've, I've read virals as well, and the adult in it is, um, I, I don't want to give anything away, but he's, he's not the, the, the nicest person, shall we say, the key, the prof. And I'm yes. just wondering whether you always, you, you slip in with that kind of book, the kids are going to be the heroes and the adults are going to be the baddies and how you get away from that. You know, when I was thinking about writing this, um, a, a friend, good friend of mine is Bob Stein, R.L. Stein, who wrote uh, the, the Goosebumps series and a number of others. And he said to me, the best piece of advice I can get is just keep the adults in the background. Just have the adults there uh, forefront as little as possible. So That's very interesting. So, so yeah, because you, you, you're right, they are slightly first yeah. person removed. Yeah. 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 Um, it's almost like the Spielberg, where you only see the, chil the children's view of the adults when they go into the house. You only see the bottom of their legs, type of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, did you find working with your son on these novels um, unusual experience? I'm just trying to think how you would co-write a book with your son. Well, he's not only a lawyer, he's a litigator. So he would write his sections, and I would write my sections. And he's better at some things. He's much better at juvenile adolescent dialogue than I am. I'm better at the science. And then w I would print it out and I would, uh, every third of the book, quarter of the book, I would edit, literally with a red pen, destroy his art, as he would call it. And then we would have editorial meetings and discuss our creative differences. <laughs> and then we'd do it my way. <laughs> and, and, when, and when you're plotting the book, because that involves, I'm guessing, coffee shops and staring out the window and just allowing yourselves to think. But I always think that's a very private process for an author. And to do it with a second person must be very difficult. We did it, um, this is, I believe, before the TV show went on air. But it's like breaking a story. When you write a screenplay for TV, you don't do it alone. Breaking the story means you go into the writer's room and collectively with the other staff writers, I think we had seven, you hammer out. When you go in, the walls are covered with these terrifyingly empty white erasable boards. And by the end of anywhere from one to three weeks, and they're divided for our show, they were divided into six acts. And by the end of one to three weeks, you have hammered out. They're full with scribbled 
outline your A story, which is your main storyline, your crime, your B story, which is something in the lives of the characters, and then maybe a C story. And so we would do it like that. We would hammer out together, just throwing out ideas at each other. And mm. I would say, let's do that. He'd say, no, that is stupid. And then he'd say, let's do this. And I'd say, no, this. Anyway, by the end of, uh, we, would, we would come up with a, an outline, much more outlining than I do with, with the adult novels. There, there are so many angles to, to interview you about. And one of them I, I mustn't miss is your writing style. Uh, and which I think is just phenomenal, those of you who, who read Kathy's style. So I was reading Speaking in Bones, and I just, I just was highlight. Forgive me, I've got my Kindle out here because I read it on my Kindle. And uh, I just highlighted some of my favorite um, Kathy Reich sentences. So here we go. My left, I'm not going to do the accent. My left-hand neighbor hanged himself from the end of his pier. His dog curled up and died by his head. Double suicide, maggot jamboree. Is that a great <laughs> That's line? That's actually from Sunday night, though, from two nights. Oh, is it? Okay, so no, because yeah. I've, I've done a whole... Is yeah. that right? Okay, right, so I've got a whole... Everything in here is Kathy Reich's, basically. Okay. okay. The curtains lifted on a breeze smelling of salt and pluff mud. The room crept a few nanometers from orange toward amber. Other memories bubbled up. I, this is another one. I drew a breath to fight slippage from the vault in my brain. Not quick enough. A montage detonated, headlight bright, cruel. I mean, these... It's, it reminds me a little bit of Raymond Chandler, the incredible precision and the way you write. It's almost more succinct than anybody, and I love it. <laughs> so have you come to that over 20 yeah. books? Is that yeah. right? Yeah, I've been accused of being a minimalist writer, but I do believe in using the, just the, get, the, get the right word, and don't use adverbs. If you don't say he ran quickly, say he bolted, or he darted, or he charged, or say, get the right word. Oh, that's a very handy tip. Should we remember that? <laughs> I, it's By not... the way, we've just identified the problem with Kindles here, which is that you open, <laughs> and you don't know which book you're reading. It's ridiculous, isn't it? <laughs> Apps never use a Kindle. Um, but, but that's, okay, so now you're going to give us uh, your tips for, I know we have writers out there, aspiring writers and, and uh, published writers, so never use adverbs. Come on, let's have the rules. That's just my unique little thing. I also try to end my chapters uh, such that you're going to want to read the next chapter, leave little hooks at the end of the chapter. Yeah. Um, it, it's hard for me. I have no training as a writer, so I just write the way I like to read, and I like that concise um, sort of style. Do, do, you, do you ever get into the danger of you, you sort of as a peripheral character and you spend a bit too much time on them and then they... Yeah, but I don't really buy into that, oh, this character took control of me, or you, you have the delete key. You're in charge. <laughs> so if it's going in a direction you don't like, you have the delete key. I will say, though, I'm a linear writer. I write chapter one, and then chapter two, and then chapter three. See, see where I'm going? And then chapter four, chapter <laughs> five. My daughter, the other lawyer, who's not a lawyer, but a novelist, <laughs> if she wakes up and she's in a happy mood, she writes the love scene. And if she's in a bad mood, she writes the death scene. I, that's so wrong. I just, I don't. <laughs> so I do write in a very linear, but it's also feedback. As I'm going, I'm always doing research and I'm always keeping my ears open and my eyes open for ideas. So if I stumble on something that I like, I will put it in. Now that may mean going back and modifying earlier um, parts of what I've already written. So, it, so it's linear, but it's linear with feedback loops. And do you think you, you benefit hugely from your real-world experience of life and death? Oh, I think so, absolutely. I mean, most people 
I think part of the fascination with books such as mine is that most people do not have to go to a crime scene, do not have to be present at an autopsy, do not work in a crime lab, and yet they're curious about that and what it's like. So I think the fact that I do work in those contexts gives a certain authenticity to my books. And I never, I use place as a real, real intimate part of every story. And I never write about a place I haven't gone. There's been a book set in Israel. I went to Israel after I went on a USO tour to Afghanistan. Tempe goes to Afghanistan. She goes to Guatemala because I went to Guatemala to exhume a mass grave. So I, I use a lot of detail of place. I know this is a, a bittersweet uh, publication because as tonight's comes out, um, Bones ends its 12-year run on Fox. Is that right? Longest-running scripted drama in the history of Fox. <laughs> and, and, and in a way, we see, you know, we obviously see the visualization of, of you on screen as, as Tim. In fact, I think you even appeared in it yourself. I did. I appeared on, in season two. Um, our executive producer, Hart Hansen, said, I want, I want you to be... To, to do an appearance, and I said, no, I'm not going to. He said, I'm going to write a part. If you don't want to do it, I'll cast it. I said, that's fine, Hart, but I'm not going to do it. He said, David Duchovny's directing. I said, I'm there. <laughs> so, <laughs> so I spent two weeks sitting between David Boreanaz and David Duchovny, which was not hard duty. Mm. So did you watch them all? Did you, well, you produced them, didn't you? You were an executive producer. So. I was a producer. Um, I read every script. We did over 260 or something. There are only, there's less than a dozen shows in the history of television that did as many episodes as, it's called the 24 Club or something. Um, so I read every script. Um, I would give feedback on, uh, particularly the science, the terminology. Although by the end of 12, by the end of about seven seasons, our writers were so sophisticated in their use of, of anthropological terminology, I think they could have sat for their master's theses and, <laughs> and, and passed. Um, and then I would, re uh, so I appeared in one, and then I would write a screenplay every year from about season, I don't know, five on or something. Mm. Uh, and are there things that we see in the on-screen temperance that we don't see in the books? Oh, yeah, they're quite different. Um, and I think of TV Tempe and book Tempe. Uh, TV Tempe is younger, although over 12 years, Emily uh, closed the gap. Because one of the problems you have with a continuing character series, and you have to make a conscious decision, do you age your character? Some authors do, and their characters grow older and older, and others don't. Tempe is just, in the books, has just hovered, you know, north of 40. She was north of 40 in the first book, and she's still, eh, sort of north of 40. <laughs> The cat is now 37. But, uh, <laughs> so, and I totally forget where. So, no, she, so she's she has younger a, on television. Yeah. Um, she's socially awkward on television. Well, more so, I thought, on, on TV than in the books. Or, or Much more awkward on TV. Because she has a phrase, I don't know what that means. And that's almost... Yeah, what does that mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, she's not very polished at all. But I think if you watched... Um, all 12 seasons and binged back to back every episode, you'd be amazed at what Emily Deschanel did with that character, how that character evolved and changed over 12 years. So and that was deliberate or it's just that it almost happens without trying? I think it's both, but also the way the scripts were written and the evolving. You can't keep, 
you, you, you know, the, one of the things that worked so beautifully with David and Emily was the chemistry. I mean, they were just, but you can't keep the will they, will they chemistry going forever. That, that gets old eventually. So you have to change up what's going on in the lives of your characters and the relationships between your characters. So I think we have our, our executive producers and our writers to thank for, for that and for keeping the show fresh, which kept the show on and still having our whatever seven, eight million viewers every single week in the US. We're going to take questions in a minute or two. If, if you have I a question, you were going I will. No, 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 no. You know. oh, do they do that in the stage? <laughs> <laughs> I'm so tempted that we almost started talking about American politics backstage, didn't we? And oh. we can see we're on the verge of a very animated conversation. We're going to have to open one of these. Yeah, we might have to if we do that. Yeah. Um, so, but just before we go to questions, just also tell us about your your writing discipline, if you can, because again, for for writers in the room, I mean, I've read that you are signed to do one book novel a year. Is that right? Yes, for the last fight, that is true. And if um, if my if you run into my publisher who's here, I'm on chapter 25 of the next one. <laughs> I'm actually on chapter 10, which is. Not <laughs> mm. um, but for the last five or six years, I've been doing the young adult book, a screenplay, a Temperance Brennan book, and a short story every mm. year. And that's, that's a pretty killer pace. Yeah. So, but then you are no longer working daily at the anthropology, are you? That's correct. And I never really worked daily. It's, it was on a per case basis. Sometimes I might be called in five days a week or even seven if there was, you know, big, something big going on. And then there might be several weeks go by before I'd be called Because I said, it said you're on indefinite leave. And I thought that sounds oh, that's in at itself the university. suspicious. Yeah. <laughs> that's at the university. Yeah. That's a sweet gig. Um, I, was, <laughs> I was on sabbatical for whatever the state law allowed, six years or seven, I think. And then they switched my line to the chancellor's office. So I'm not actively teaching, but I'm available. Um, but there's a, door, there's a door with your name on it somewhere. I else. don't know. You know, I, I had dinner with our chancellor not too long ago, and I said, you know, what is my status exactly? And he said, I'm, I'm not sure. We'll have to go out to the website and look. So <laughs> I don't know if I'm emeritus or what exactly it is. But, so if, if you're doing one a year, you've got to break the year down into plotting it and then writing it. And then there's a bit of, even, even you, I I guess have to face the red pen of somebody at some point. So there's that, and there's proofing, and then actually, I guess we are part of your year. As and we don't feel like work tonight, but this is, in a sense, part of the year, isn't it? Right. So that's quite crowded. It is, and pretty much when you finish a book and turn it in, you, you, you're. I'm already formulating the idea for the next one. I'm already starting to plot and starting to research. Mm. There'll probably be a gap of time while edits come back um, from the one I've just turned in, when I'm not actually writing the new book, but I will be working on it and thinking about it and plotting it. And do, of course, then I have to ask you, is the next one featuring Sunday night or Tempe? Tempe. Okay. Tempe I thought book. you might say it's a secret. No, it's going to be a Tempe book. So yeah. we have to wait for the next bit of Sunday night, do we? Yeah. yeah. Mm, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Who would like now? Are we going to even see the people asking the questions? I, I think they've left, except for the front <laughs> no, they, they, That's I can no, hear them. I can, can hear them. them. They're definitely okay. there. All right. I, if, if you don't ask questions, I'm going to read out uh, Kathy's list of academic papers. <laughs> yes, we have a brilliant hand in the air, sir. Fantastic. Oh, no, don't put it down. Well, I've read all of your books and watched all of uh, Tempe over the years, but one question I must ask is the science that the uh, other members of the teams fully accurate? Yeah, we try to keep it 
Okay, N not plausible. We try to keep it plausible. And whatever we use, we have, we have wonderful researchers as well as writers. So we will think, okay, let's use leopard slugs. I, let's research leopard slugs. Well, we learn that leopard slugs put out slime and they will invade a body, and if you add water, it'll increase in volume by 90%. Great opening scene. <laughs> so, how often does it happen? You know, I don't know, but, or the Angelotron. It's real, it's a three-dimensional holographic reconstruction apparatus. Have I ever been in a lab that has one? No, because of cost uh, prohibitions, but you wanna hear a funny thing about the slime? Yeah. My daughter and I co-wrote an episode called The Dude in the Dam. And uh, <laughs> this is a good example of how writing for Hollywood is different from writing a novel. I write a novel, I turn it in, they, my editors tell me it's splendid, I may get some editorial suggestions, they're usually very, very gentle. When you write a script for, you break the story, you pitch it, once it's approved, you write the script, you turn it in, and they change everything. <laughs> my daughter and I wrote The Dude in the Dam, and our opening scene, if you've ever seen the show, it it's always ends up with, with the discovery of a messed up human body. So our idea was that somebody is screaming along on an ATV, they hit something, they go airborne, they come crashing down into this puddle of slime, leopard slugs, and there's a body. Eh, cue, the, cue the music. That got changed to two kids walking in the woods and they see a body in a beaver dam. <laughs> Budget, you don't have to pay to crash <laughs> the ATV, you don't have to pay for a stunt driver, you don't have to have the medic there for the stunt, but what we did not know, we, so we go through pre-production, we're filming on location, we've dug this big uh, river thing and they're gonna cue the water and the water's gonna come down through the beaver dam. What we, what we didn't know is that there were only three working beavers in Los Angeles. <laughs> and they were all booked. <laughs> so, so it came down to the, we find there must have been, I don't know, a contract dispute or something, but we got our beaver and we were told that the beaver was a, a bolter. That as soon as the wrangler opened the cage, the beaver would take off. Anytime you have animals on set, you have to have a wrangler. So we had both a beaver wrangler and a slug wrangler <laughs> on set. So we're all standing around because we didn't want this hard-gotten beaver to take off. Well, Wrangler opens the cage. Turns out it's a very elderly beaver. <laughs> so the beaver does nothing. It just sits there. So the, the episode opens with a close, uh, tight shot on the beaver, and then it pans back, and she's giving a pretty good performance. She's moving around, and she's doing certain... We thought she... I thought she might get a nod for like best performance by a small furry mammal. But anyway, the only reason she's doing that is we're all standing around with carrots, sort of prodding her and bribing her. But, but we digress. They're working beavers, that's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. All right, you've, yes, gentleman here, person there, all blokes so far, yeah. Cathy, um, yeah, in a world where we have a president who thinks he can pardon himself, um, is it, have we reached the point where fiction can't trump fact? <laughs> no pun intended there. <laughs> you sound like the guy at the movies, in a world. Where... Yeah. Oh, fiction. Shall we do, shall we do the T word? I mean, uh... <laughs> fiction is fiction, yeah. And it's true in forensics too. Every time you think you've seen something and you will never see anything more bizarre, 
something more bizarre comes in. Yeah. Or I'll get a call up at my lab from the autopsy room, and they'll say, you got to come down and see this one. Mm. <laughs> so who else? Question for one of the greatest crime writers on the face of the planet. Yes, sir. Um, kind of like a two-part question. First of all, when you're not doing all the, the writing and everything else, is there any kind of particular author or book that you enjoy reading? Great oh, question. I love uh, crime. I write, read a lot of crime fiction. Um, I like the darkest. I love Ian Rankin. I love Michael Connolly. Um, P.D. James was wonderful. I like the old Raymond Chandler. There's so many good ones. It's hard to... It's hard to pick. Lee Child. Oh, here's something fun. Lee Child and I just co-wrote a short story. And in it, it's in an anthology called Matchup, put out by the international thriller writers. And the premise was to bring together a male author and protagonist with a female author and protagonist. So in this short story, um, Brennan and Reacher are together. Yeah. <laughs> so, we, we, Lee and I really had a good time writing well, it. The, <laughs> the two of them together, seriously? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. my, and my. We, we didn't plot it out. It's, the book is called Matchup. There are 22 authors. Val McDermott is in there with Peter James. Brilliant. Has a story in there. Um, and the only thing Lee and I decided early on, and then we went off to do other things before we came back to actually write it, and this was Lee's suggestion. She said, let's not do the standard gender thing. Let's have... Brennan Rescue Reacher at the end, so that's not giving away too much. Okay, and I, I read that you loved Nancy Drew. I did. As Didn't a child. everybody? Yeah. 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 And and any other authors that you read way back when, which who inspired you? I mean, I read a lot of Agatha Christie, for example. Oh God! Well, The Silence of the Lambs was, I think, a brilliant, yeah. brilliant uh, novel. If I were to aspire to a crime novel, mm. and and Two Nights is more of a thriller, a psychological. Did I say that already? I got off a plane this morning from Dallas, so I'm still a little... Well, it wasn't the same plane, but I... A bit psychological thriller, that's okay, isn't it? Is yeah, it? It, it kind of blends psychological thriller with traditional police investigation. Because at the beginning, did we talk about that? That Sunday night is asked to try to track down... Yeah, well, do I, I, I never know how deep into the book I should go. I don't want to spoil it for people, but... Uh, <laughs> no, but that's the main... That's like your A story. Yeah. Is that because she's living in seclusion and her foster father really wants to help her out and draw her out of that. Um, he has a friend in Charleston, an older lady, whose daughter and grandson were killed in the bombing of a Jewish girls' school, a terrorist attack on a Jewish girls' school in Chicago. And her granddaughter went di disappeared. Nobody knows what has happened to her, and it is believed that she's been taken by this, this terrorist cult. So Bo goes to Sunday and asks her if she will please try to find out what happened to this young girl. So what, what Sunday does isn't because it's a job she does, like Tempe Brennan, she's a forensic anthropologist, she's not a PI, she's not a cop. She does it because she's personally compelled to do it because of her own past history and to try to save this young girl if she is suffering the same uh, situation that, that she did. She, she relates to her very clearly, doesn't she? Yeah. 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 There's an amazingly dramatic scene where... Oh, you're still standing up. You, did you, <laughs> I feel terrible. Did you, is that because you, you got another question or something? It's just or? the second kind of part to the question, which is... Uh, <laughs> Go, well, we're still going here. Go. Can, can I feel awkward now? No. <laughs> um, when you look back to the very first book that you brought out and you, you, know, you wrote, did you ever think that you would be you know, as popular as you are now among like, the crime readers? <laughs> 
Well, no, you hope you'll get published is it. And then you hope people will buy your book and like your book. And that hopefully, I think my first contract was a two book contract. And because Deja Dead was, did so well right out the door, then the pressure's on. Is she a one book wonder? Can she produce another successful book? My personality type is that there's always pressure. You know, if you make the New York Times list, that's the pressure. Initially, to get published, to write a good book, to get published, then to make the Times list, then to make it higher on the Times list, then to make number one on the Times list, then to stay there for seven years. You know, so you're always raising the bar. I'm just assuming that when you go on holiday, you there is a laptop somewhere close by. Yes, usually, yes. You don't relax yes, that yeah, much. Yeah. All of a sudden, though, I, I had no grandchildren, and then all of a sudden, I have six. <laughs> it's like a little litter. Um, I, want, I wanted it, the so, so now that I've got we've got permission to go a little way into the new book. There's an amazing scene where she thinks. Tell me if I can't say this. She thinks there's someone in her t hotel room, and she waits in the corridor, and she's going to wait if necessary four hours to she see. She waits whether, a long time. Yeah, she yeah. waits a long time, and I won't say what. But armed. It's, it, armed. Well, yes, people walking by thinking, oh, there's an armed lady there. Um, so that's it. it just. For your vivid writing, that is an incredible scene. And it's rather like with Speaking in Bones, there's a scene on a mountainside, which you'll know if you've read it, where a, a very large object just plunges down. And suddenly, it is cinematographic. It's so powerful. OK, we have, let's see, maybe two or three more questions. Uh, let, yes. I was wondering whether you've obviously been writing for a long, long time, and I was wondering whether when you introduce um, a new character, such as you have just done, or a new series, um, do, you, do you still feel nervous or anxious when you're trying something new? Uh, not when I'm writing it. When I was writing and creating Sunday, I really had, I just was in, immersed in the creative process, and it was so much fun to just make something up from nothing after having to adhere to the Temperance Brennan Bible, you know, because I have a Bible, much, each TV show has what they call their Bible, and constantly checking back and making sure that you've got everything correct as you'd written it, you know, in book two or book seven or, or whatever. Whereas with Sunday night, I could just make it up as I went along, so I really did enjoy that a lot. Of course, when you try something new, um, you, I worry a little, will there be resistance? Well, why'd you do this? Why don't you just do another Tempe book? Uh, sort of when the show came on, well, why'd you make her different? Why'd you put it in Washington instead of, you know, Carolina or Montreal? Why is she younger? But that's all, people have accepted that now. It's like just more of Tempe. So Sunday night will just be more of Kathy Rice. Do, do people have to like your central character? Do they have to like her? I think they have to um, be able to identify, empathize with her, if not like her. Mm -hmm. You don't like her? No, I... <laughs> <laughs> if she was in the bar and she was, and I knew uh, her from your book, I would. I feel I needed to go armed, probably. Um, you probably wouldn't approach her. Yeah, I, I would worry about that. However, there's, it's she's so strong on the outside and so broken on the inside, and that's why I feel I wanted to get through this book in one piece and be and grow through it. So yes, I did like her, but in a complicated way, which is probably what you wanted. Um, all right, come on, let's have another. Yeah. Right at the front. Here we are. Hello. Um, I know that you are no longer working in the forensic anthropology area, but what do you think uh, that area, or how do you think that area will develop over the next few years, and how might it affect some of the stories you tell? Well, forensic anthropology is alive and well. I'm sometimes asked, well, will DNA put you out of business? 
No, because you can't, as I think I said earlier, you can't use it in a vacuum. If you've got completely unknown remains, you need that profile from the anthropologist. We'll still be very active in human rights. Uh, you know, every day we learn about mass graves in, you know, in Eastern Europe or wherever. So we'll still be very active in those areas as well. Uh, my, my first love and my expertise is forensic anthropology, so I'm still very much, even though I'm not doing as much casework as I once was, I'm very much involved in professional activities. I'm a member of the American Academy of Forensic Sciences. I read the Journal of Forensic Sciences, so I'm always getting ideas and feedback from, from those sources. We have, we have a series here called Line of Duty, which I'm thinking everyone in the room has, has seen. It's, it's a remarkable police procedural. and in, in the recent series, you're just reminded of how, I don't know if it's got harder, but how technology has changed writing. So there's a lot of an issue of if a character goes out with their mobile phone, they can, you can tell two weeks later where they've been. That's one thing. Then if you walk through a house, you leave a bit of dandruff and you can be traced. That's the and then it's working out how you, whether that works against you or whether right. you can use it in your favor. Right. And yeah because it, so much can be done with a mobile phone. How do I arrange it that it's believable and plausible that this character doesn't have a mobile phone? That's one of the things about Sunday night. Is she, she's so distrusting of the world, she doesn't keep a mobile phone. And she has a lot of wigs, and I'm thinking wigs well, are also kind of a lovely analog thing <laughs> yeah, to yeah. wear different wigs to... Yeah. That's yeah, not giving uses, anything away, is it? No, she no. uses disguises. Not very often, but... <laughs> so, so, so... We are in such a different world for crime detection, aren't we? Mm -hmm. That's the thing. But I think there's still room for the good old-fashioned instinct-driven police legwork novel as well. Mm. All right. Should we just do one more question, Kathy? Okay. Uh, Kathy, it's a slightly different question. Okay. You're obviously a, a thoroughly accomplished and experienced scientist. But one of the things which comes across in your books is the humanity of Temperance Brennan in her attitude to everything from pythons to kill children. Um, do you think scientists make good writers? Oh, I think, no, not necessarily, but some, you can be a good scientist and a good writer. I think one of the problems that um, many academics and scientists make in trying to write fiction is they love their science, and so they put too much of it in. You've got to keep it accurate, but you've got to keep it brief, and you've got to keep it entertaining, and you've got to keep it jargon-free. We can't rely on the terminology, that specialized terminology we use amongst ourselves as, as, uh, as scientists. It's almost the same skill, I think, as addressing a jury. You don't want to dumb it down, but you want to keep the jury's attention, and you want to um, make them understand your point while doing it in a very brief and concise and accurate way. Well, I, I want to thank Val McDermott for saying, come up and you can meet Kathy Rikes and, uh, and interview her at Harrogate. So if she's here, thanks, Val. What a session, what an author, and what a privilege to meet you and to hear from you. Kathy Rikes, everyone. Thank you for listening to this event by Harrogate International Festivals. Don't forget to rate and subscribe for this podcast. For more events, recordings, resources and information about our arts charity, please visit harrogateinternationalfestivals.com.